you all can be seated as you're being seated if you'll find your Bibles and open them up with me to Luke chapter 19. Story goes that there were three guys who were going to go to the airport and they were going to fly from DFW to Hawaii. And so the first guy drove up at the airport and he drove a black Pontiac G6. And by the way, if you drive a black Pontiac G6, uh, you left your car running today, and so we stopped it from running, and you can pick up your keys at the children's desk. Like how I worked that in right there, but uh, uh, anyhow, if you do have a black Pontiac G6, we found your car. So this first guy, he, uh, he is getting on the airplane, and he's a workaholic, and so he gets on the plane, doesn't talk to anybody, puts the earbuds in, opens the computer, and from Dallas to Hawaii, all he does is he just does work. He gets a lot of work done during that time, but he certainly does not talk to anybody. The second guy gets on the airplane. He's a talkaholic. I mean, he gets on. He has the Hawaiian shirt on. He's got like the pineapple drink in his hand before he even gets there. And he's engaging everybody he knows. By the time the flight's over, he knows everybody's name sitting around him and knows their life story. And he's laughed and just had a good time the entire flight. Watched Netflix, had a blast, didn't get anything done. But boy, he met a lot of folks. The third guy that gets on the plane, he's an aerophobic. You know what an aerophobic is? Fear of flying. So this guy gets on the plane and he's popping pills, you know, because he's nervous and he, he like brings a spare parachute to wear. And, and uh, when, they, when they do the safety talk at the beginning when nobody's really paying attention, this guy's like taking notes. He's like, okay. And so the entire flight, he just holds on for dear life and he can't wait for the plane to get back on the ground. All three of these guys, they got on the same plane. They all were on the plane for the same amount of time. Eventually, they all landed, and they all landed in an area that was a paradise. And so they walked out of the plane to enjoy the next chapter in their story. But here's the difference. What they did in the meantime. That meantime period is really very important in life. So let me ask you this question. How are you going to spend your meantime in life? Some of you parents watch these kids as they stood up here for graduation and you think to yourself, well, my kids are a long ways from there. Well, how are you going to spend the meantime? The time between now and graduation. The meantime, that precious time between when the assignment is given and you take the test. The meantime, those single years where you are growing as a person and you are maturing, anticipating the day when you find that right person and you do engage in holy matrimony. That meantime when you're in love with one another and you're starting out your marriage and you're beginning to build your home and God hasn't blessed you with children quite yet, but you're in the meantime. That meantime when you have children in the home and you're kind of a family unit and you're busy, 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 it seems like you're always just going from sun up to sundown and it's just so hard, but what are you going to do in that meantime? Or that meantime after you've retired, you've worked those years and now you're an empty nester and you're ready to kick back and relax a little bit, yet you're still taking up space and taking in air. What are you going to do with the meantime? How you spend the meantime 
in many ways defines how the story of your life will go. Well, as we come to Luke chapter 19, it's the Passover time. Now, the Passover time was the most wonderful time of the year on the Jewish calendar. People would come from all over the country to Jerusalem. You would see your family. You would see your friends. It was a great celebration. And yet, it was a bittersweet time for the Jews as well. You say, well, why was it bittersweet? Well, the Passover time was all about remembering when uh, the Jews were delivered by God from slavery in Egypt. And yet, as they would remember how they were delivered by God from slavery, at the same time, they had to recognize the fact that now they were under Roman domination. And so it became bittersweet. Because in 63 B.C., this great Roman general by the name of Pompey, he marched his army into Rome and they all into Jerusalem, and so all the Jewish people became subjects of Rome. So now as Jesus and the disciples are walking up the Jericho Road, this very steep, mountainous road that leads to Jerusalem, as they near Jerusalem, the rumors are beginning to swirl that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem to be the next king of Jerusalem, that he was going to bring about the second Passover and he was going to conquer Rome and set up his throne there in Jerusalem. So Jesus tells this parable, beginning in verse 11, to address the rumors about who he is. And he says these words. As they were listening to this, he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear right away. Therefore, he said, a nobleman traveled to a far country to receive for himself authority to be king and then return. Now, bear with me because I want to give you a little bit of history that kind of gives you context for this parable. There was a king by the name of Herod the Great. And when King Herod the Great died, he put it in his will that Archelaus would be his successor. But before Archelaus could be king, he would have to travel to Rome where Augustus Caesar, you may remember Octavian from Shakespeare's play, Augustus Caesar would confirm him as the king. But ah, there was a twist that developed. Before Archelaus could be confirmed as the new king of the area, civil unrest broke out in Jerusalem, and it didn't go well. It wound up with 3,000 people losing their life, and then Archelaus tried to cancel the Passover feast. That's about like trying to cancel Christmas. People don't like it when you do that. So the religious leaders and some of his own family beat him to Rome, and tried their very best to keep him from becoming the next king of the region. Well, eventually, Octavian, or Augustus Caesar, decided he would let Archelaus be a governor there in Jerusalem, but he wouldn't let him be the king. And so when Archelaus got back to Jerusalem, he was upset. And he judged very severely all these people that had come against him. So that story took, took place about 30 years before this parable. 
And as Jesus begins the parable with the sentence, a nobleman traveled to a far country to receive for himself authority to be king and then return, immediately people would understand that this event that happened 30 years past and they would be able to relate to what Jesus was saying. So let's continue in verse 13. He called ten of his slaves and he gave them ten minas. And he told them, engage in business until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to rule over us. So he calls together ten of his faithful servants. And to each one of these servants, he gives one mina. Now, a mina was the equivalent of about three months worth of wages. So knowing how you all bring in a lot all the time, we'd say that Amina was about $400,000, right? Isn't that about three, three months' wages, right? Okay, all right. So let's say it's about $15,000. So not only does he give each one of them one mina, he also gives them an instruction. He says, engage in business until I come back. Now that is huge. The king gives them the resources, And the king then gives them an instruction. You're to take these resources and engage in business until I come back. In other words, the king wanted them to use what he gave them to multiply, to increase the kingdom. Do this and be faithful. And the king says, there's going to be people that don't like me. I'm going to have enemies. But you're supposed to be faithful to do that which I have told you to do. Now catch this. Make sure you're hearing this, all right? When God blesses you, whether it be some talent that you have, the spiritual gifts that you possess, it may be that He blesses you with financial resources, some type of experience, some type of ability that you can bring into the kingdom of God. God's expectation is that you will use what He gives you in such a way that it multiplies. God does not want you to be a hoarder. Hoarding of God's gifts is not the kingdom principle. God's spiritual economy is not set up in such a way that His servants are just supposed to receive whatever it is that He gives us and just hang on for dear life. Now, just a moment of of realness here, a moment of transparency. The way that I'm wired, I'm a pretty conservative person. I like to have things orderly. I like to be able to uh, look forward and kind of see where the path is going. And so it's hard for me to be one of those folks that just says, just let go and let God. You know, any of you guys, it's easy to just let go and let God. Don't worry so much, Lash. That's hard for me, okay? I, I'm a child of the 80s. We've got to hold on to what we've got. You know what I'm saying? Okay? You know, and some of you, it's real easy for you to say, I just let go and let God. But for others of us, it's a little bit harder on this. And, and our society trains us. If you think about the way society is engineered, it trains us from the time that we are really small to be safe. And inadvertently sometimes trains us to hold on to fear. And we become handcuffed to the what ifs. What if I do this 
and it doesn't work? What if I try this and they reject me? What, what if I fail? What if, what if I take this, the king goes off, and then his enemies prevail and he doesn't return? What if what I think to be true proves itself not to be true? And we, we find ourselves handcuffed to the what ifs, and a lot of times we find ourselves crippled by fear. We don't really do anything with our lives. We don't even really do anything that demands risk or faith because we want things to be safe, sanitized, and we're crippled by fear. Those of you students that are graduating, this is one of the, one of the uh, biggest days of your life. But let me just say this word of encouragement. Don't make it the best day of your life. It's just the beginning. Yeah, it's just the beginning. What you've done to this point, fantastic. But God has more to do with you. The story of your life is still being written. Spiritual investments always involve Faith. And faith always involves risk. And risk always means some measure of change. Change makes me kind of nervous. You following me? If you're going to make a spiritual investment, you're going to use your life in a way that really multiplies, you're going to have to have faith. And for you to have faith, you're going to have to be willing to take some risk. And for you to take risk, it means that some things are going to change. Now, when it comes to Holy Scripture and the things of God, and the timeless truths of Christ, those things remain forever and for all time. But whenever we step out of the boat and we start taking steps of faith, it does mean that certain things around us change, and that tends to make us nervous, which tends to make us want to go back to our natural default, which is just safety and sanitized and secure. And yet Jesus teaches us that his servants are to take what he has given us and invest it into his community, into his creation, into the people that he loves, into the world around us, into worship of his name. We are to take our resources, who we are, our gifts, our past, our abilities, our finances, all those things, and invest it in such a way that God can multiply it. Now, I don't really understand exactly how this completely works in the economy of God, but for some reason, when God sees his people take steps of faith, the power of God shows up. Now, you say, couldn't the power of God just show up without the steps of faith? Yeah, he's God. He can do what he wants. Yet you read this all through scriptures that whenever, whenever God's people take steps of faith, when God's people pray and they acknowledge that they are in need of the power and presence of God, that's when God does incredible things that drops our jaws and causes us to stand in his amazement. God desires his servants to invest what he has given us into his kingdom so that we might multiply it, not for our glory, but for his glory. Now, be very careful on this, because any time you do work for your glory, you have fallen into what we call legalism. Legalism is all about, I do this so you can look at me. That's not Scripture. Scripture teaches us, yes, we do things for God because we are God's children, and we do those things for God because we want His glory to be seen and known through all the world, not for my glory. You do because you are, not in order to be, and those things that you do, you do for God's glory, not for your own. Well, let's see what happens when God's servants have faith. 
Well, at his return, having received the authority to be king, he summoned those slaves who had given, he had given the money to so he could find out how much they had made in business. And the first came forward and said, Master, your mina has earned ten more minas. Well done, good slave, he told him, because you have been faithful in a very small matter. Have authority over ten towns. The second came and said, Master, your mina has made five minas. And so he said to him, You will be over five towns. Now, the king goes away and he returns. Now, I'm sure you've figured out that in the parable, the king here is a parallel to Jesus. That Jesus would die on the cross, he would descend into the grave and ascend through the resurrection and then ascend to heaven and the king would come back and when Christ comes again he won't come as the innocent baby of Bethlehem but whenever he comes back he will come back as the king of kings and the lord of lords so in the parable when the king comes back he gathers his servants together and he wants to know what have you been doing in the meantime What have you done with the resources that I entrusted to you? And at first, he's very pleased. First guy comes up, and this guy, he's an all-star. I mean, he's smart. He's tall. He's talented. He has a beautiful family. When he smiles, ding. I mean, he's he's just got it. And he took what the king gave him and had faith, and he invested his mina well, and it grew tenfold. And so the king looks at him and says, you've been faithful over this small matter. I'm going to now put you over a larger matter. You're going to help me in my kingdom, and you're going to uh, be king over ten towns. Then the second guy comes in. Now, he's not quite an all-star. He tried, though, and he did the right thing. He had faith. He worked hard. He, he worked every week, and he was faithful, and he took what the king had given him, and he invested it in the kingdom, and it grew fivefold. And so when it comes before the king, the king doesn't, doesn't scold him for not making ten. Instead, he says, good job. Good job. You took what I gave you, you invested it, you turned it into five more, and so he puts him over five towns. So all is going well. And then in walks the slacker slave, the slacker servant. I can imagine he's 10 minutes late, has a Nutella on his cheek from his toast and chocolate. Have you ever noticed, like, if Nutella had Hershey's on it, moms would never let their kids eat it. But because it says Nutella, you can eat it. Anyway, so he has Nutella on his face, and he comes in watching Netflix on his phone. Hey, what's up, king? Good to have you back. And so the scripture says, And another came and said, Master, here's your mina. I've kept it. I've kept it hidden in a cloth. Now notice what his motivation was. Because I was afraid. And then he blames the king. I was afraid of you. For you're a tough man. You collect what you didn't deposit and reap what you didn't sow. So here's basically his response. I took what you gave me and Because I'm scared to do anything with it, I wrapped it up in this cloth and I just kind of kept it safe. Because when you came back, I wanted to be able to give it back to you. So I, I haven't lost what you gave me, but I also haven't used it in any way for anything that was good. I've just kind of 
hoarded it. So the king responds, I will judge you by what you've said, you evil slave. If you knew I was a tough man, collecting what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow, why didn't you put the money in the bank? And when I return, I would have collected it with interest. So the king basically says to him, look, I'm not so concerned about the amount of return that you have. If you would have just put it in the bank, it would have drawn interest, and I would have been happy. What I'm upset about is that you disobeyed. You didn't do anything with it. And so he said to those standing there, Take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. You say, Lash, this kind of seems harsh, doesn't it? No, and here's why. The mina wasn't his in the first place. It had been given to him. He didn't, he didn't earn the mina. The king had given it to him. You see, this is where we get offline. We start thinking that what we have, our, our talents, our abilities, our gifts, our life, our resources, that those are mine. When in reality, everything that we have is a gift from God. And secondly, the king had given him specific instructions. I'm going away, and in the meantime, I, I want you to invest what I've given you. The king wasn't overly concerned with the size of the return, but he was greatly concerned with the lack of faith in the meantime. What does God want from me, Lash? That's the question we've asked all throughout this series. God wants you. He wants you to trust Him. He wants you to put your simple life in Him. And when we invest our simple faith in an extraordinary God, that's when we see God begin to do some things that we never could imagine. Before you walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. You've got to learn to give God you, even, okay. You say, Lash, i got some junk in my past. Yeah, we all do, okay? That's kind of why we're here, you know? Because we're, we're here because we all acknowledge that we're in need of the grace of God. Uh, as long as I'm a part of this church, it won't be a perfect church. I assure you that. But you say, Lash, I've done some things in my past that, that are wrong. You know what? The power of God is such that whenever you just simply take your life and say, God, my past, who I am, what I am, I'm just going to place it in you. The power of God is such that he can take your past and he can use it for good. If you've been through great pain, guess what? You also have opportunity to relate to people who are hurting and to help them. And to use that pain that you have experienced in a way that brings exponential good to the community around you. God can use your life if you would simply trust Him in faith. And God can multiply your influence and God can put you in situations that you never dreamed if you'll simply just place your faith in him. And that's what the king was looking for. He was looking for the servants to take the mina and invest it so that it multiplies. Well, the enemies of the king were watching all this. And they, say, they said to the master, but, but, but this isn't fair. You're giving this one guy's mina to these other guys that has ten. And I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. And from the one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away. 
That was the king's response. And then it gets real in the next verse. The king says, but bring here these enemies of mine who did not want me to rule over them and slaughter them in my presence. All right, harsh isn't what the king did to the slacker servant. Harsh is what the king did to those who rejected him here, okay? He slaughtered them in his presence. So ultimately, as you begin to put the parable together, those that reject Christ as Savior will have eternal rejection from God and damnation. Those who embrace Christ as Savior are the servants. We are the ones who are supposed to take what He has given us and invest it into the kingdom. And this all leads us back to this simple question, what are you going to do with your meantime? What are you going to do? With this little life that God has given you, what are you going to do? Are you going to take the life that God has given you, push off from God, reject Him, live life as if you're God, and just spend your life however you want to? Are you going to take the life that God has given you, play it safe, live in fear each day, make sure that you don't do anything that demands of you faith, make sure that you don't take any risk, and just kind of hoard all the blessings that God has given to you, and live as those with no hope? Or are you going to take what God has given to you? Whether it's little or much. Whether you consider yourself super talented or kind of minimal in that, society, in that compartment. Whoever you are, are you going to take the resources He has given you and invest it? Because one day, each of us are going to reach this finish line in the journey we call life. And what are you going to do in the meantime? What are you going to do with your life? I am absolutely convinced of this, that if you will take what God has given you, if you will take your life, your experiences, your story, your resources, and invest them in the kingdom of God, and trust Him with the totality of your life, God will multiply your life in ways that you never could imagine. Please, quit trying to live life for your own glory. Quit trying to live life just to make sure that you're comfortable and safe. Do something that demands of you faith. Put yourself in some positions where God has to take your life and multiply it. And if God doesn't intervene, you're going to fail. And when God's people take that simple faith and invest it in the kingdom of God, when we place our trust in Him, you find story after story all through the pages of Scripture that God takes that faith, He takes that obedience, and He multiplies it, and He does things that we never could imagine. What are you going to do with your meantime? Would you be so kind as to bow your heads, please, as we come to a time of commitment? For some, this may be a time where you need to be saved or there's something that I can pray with you about. I'm here at the front and if there's anything that I can help you with, be a pastor to you today, I would love to, to encourage you. For others, you need to spend this time in prayer because as we've talked about these truths from the Word of God, some of them have jumped off the page and landed deeply within your heart and they've made you a little uncomfortable and you need to talk to God about it. What are you going to do with your meantime? How are you investing your life? How are you spending your days? As a church, this is a question we have to wrestle with. 
What are we as a collective unit going to do to bring glory to our Lord? How are we going to spend our time, talents, resources in such a way that we draw people to the Master? So maybe during this time you just need to pray. And while others sing, you can just be seated at your seat there and talk to God. It might even be that there's somebody sitting around you that you want to pray with. Others will feel led to worship during this time. Father, we, we bow our heads before you, acknowledging that you are our God. And I ask, Lord, that we won't waste the meantime. That we will invest ourselves in your kingdom. And Father, I pray. I pray for the reward. I think about the man who invested and wound up being given more. And I pray, Father, that as we take what we have and invest it in you, that we will see it multiply. And we will experience the reward. And help us to understand, Lord, that the reward is not for our glory and just for our own satisfaction. But the reward is so that your name and your fame might expand. And others may come to know you and worship you. And that they too might invest their minas, their meantime, in things that last forever. And one by one, as individuals and as a church, as we do this, we pray that we will see marriages transformed, families strengthened, communities changed. We pray, Father, that stories of tragedy will grow less and less. We pray, Father, that you might shine your light into the darkest corners of society and draw people to you. And we pray, Father, for the privilege of being there when people come alive in Jesus Christ and they discover for themselves what it means to really live, why you created them. Help us, Lord, to be there because we're stepping out on faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.